Hey, thanks for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to hear more and help support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness or find links to all our socials at zerobrightness.com. Have you ever spilled a bunch of styrofoam packing peanuts on the floor and tried to pick them up? That's what trying to talk about near feels like. There are so many ideas to discuss and positions to respond to that it feels like being on your hands and knees desperately trying to pick up those staticky little foam bastards. Actually, let me be more specific. Have you ever opened a very large but poorly packaged box whose corners immediately disintegrate, spilling its contents across the smooth, concrete warehouse floor of your terrible, soul-sucking job, an event which revealed the contents of said box to be mostly foam packing peanuts, which are literally the worst form of packing in. Why does anybody use them? And then let's say you spend the next hour trying to clean all the peanuts up, despite the fact that they cling to any surface they come in contact with, be it the edge of a trash can or the underside of a kitchen ledge. Have you ever done that? Because if you have, you'll know that you'll be finding those fucking packing peanuts everywhere for weeks. Even when you think you're done, you'll find a little piece of one on the floor. You'll see it because you put your head down during your lunch break, desperately trying to regain some energy or calm or something in the middle of a hellish workday, only to be taunted by that tiny pink speck, a reminder of something that you forgot and may never fully remember. That's what trying to talk about Nier feels like. Nier is a story about what it means to be human. In conveying that, it falls into many of the same patterns that humans do. It's messy, incoherent, problematic, predictable, and frustrating. Yet, like all of us, it has inherent value. I'm not sure if it's accurate to claim that Nier has something to say, but it has something that it wants to share with you. A deeper message of human connection that I think is rarely portrayed in such a vivid and powerful way. But talking about Nier is hard because, as I say, it's messy. Like, really, really messy. Nier is the brainchild of Yoko Taro, a writer and director at Square Enix who has amassed a cultishly devoted following by helming the Drakengard and Nier series. To me, Taro is a classic Japanese video game auteur, in the style of Goichi Suda, Swery, or even Hideo Kojima. He's got similar obsessions with niche aesthetics, anime, and high melodrama, as well as a weirdly horny vibe, more on that later. Like those auteurs, Taro knows how to drop in elements of his personal style to make every game feel uniquely his, in a way that maybe none of those other guys can even touch. Even before Disney, Marvel, Fox Co. Incorporated was making ungodly amounts of money off of a massive quote-unquote shared universe, Yoko Taro was weaving all of his games together in a way that is as impressive as it is bizarre. He seems to have an obsession with alternate timelines and simultaneous possibilities. Starting with the Drakengard games, he established a long-standing tradition of including absurd amounts of alternate endings in his games. Starting with Drakengard's 5 and reaching its logical conclusion with Nier Automata's staggering 26 endings. These endings were not all just gags, however as each one represented a substantive branch off of the main plot, complete with wildly differing outcomes and, in some cases, sequel games following said paths. For me, in the 2000s, this was my shit. I loved weird and confusing games that leaned into obfuscation so heavily that it became confrontational. I've already spoken about how much I loved Killer7, and to me, Taro's work was a very different take on that same mindset. I find his work really fascinating because it is very weird and very confrontational, but it tends to find a lot more popular support because he works in a genre where that sort of bizarrely layered bullshit is viewed as a feature rather than a bug. 2003's Dragon Card set the scene pretty nicely. 
Despite being Taro's most conventional game, it also revealed a lot about his modus operandi in its dark and twisting storyline. While on the surface, the game seems to be an action RPG set in a fairly standard anime-inspired fantasy world, one look at the game's official timeline, which starts with <laughs> the birth of Jesus Christ, should disabuse you of this notion. The world of Drakengard is set in a brutally dark alternate version of the Middle Ages that is filled with as many flighty high fantasy elements as crushingly dark low fantasy elements. This is, in both a plot and overall tone sense, how we get to the 2010 action RPG Nier, a game which is based off of an extremely strange bonus ending of Drakengard that was so weird and over the top that personally, I took it to be some kind of joke. In said ending, the final confrontation of the game breaks the space-time continuum and spills over into modern-day Tokyo, where the appearance of two monstrous entities is framed as a kaiju attack. It is honestly just so weird and unexpected that you have to laugh. The intro of Nier starts right there, showing two survivors taking shelter in a ruined building. We're thrust deep into the setting of a post-apocalyptic Tokyo and told, quite explicitly, that Drakengard's seemingly goofy fifth ending was actually meant to be taken seriously. This is Nier's first big act of subversion, and many players probably missed it. But man, there is a lot to miss when it comes to Nier. That's why we have to slow down, back up, and talk about some stuff before we even get into the plot of this game. One of the weirdest things about Nier is that there are two entirely different versions of the original game. While they are largely the same in terms of story beats and gameplay, the games feature two different protagonists. The Japanese release starred a young boy named Nier on a quest to save his sister, while the Western release starred a middle-aged father, also named Nier, trying to protect his daughter. I find it fascinating that the game works both ways, but there are some major tonal differences between the two versions. Young Nier is a classic plucky RPG hero who, thanks to a couple of time jumps, we see grow into a very intense adult, a scarred veteran who has to balance his love and loyalty to his friends against his bitterness and hatred for the world in which he finds himself surviving. Old Nier, meanwhile, maintains the same disillusioned emotional tenor throughout the game, a move that highlights the themes of repetition and unending struggle. I think that young Nier is a better protagonist, as the arc of his character development gives the game a more epic feel. The sense of huge scope and scale isn't just provided by the game world or the span of time covered by the game's story, but also by the passing of time in Nier's personal life and the way that his attitudes and actions change over the course of the game. He's a child that is forced into a parental caretaker role for his sister and who spends his whole life trying to fulfill that role against impossible odds. It makes the moments where he acts stupid, relatable, and easy to empathize with, and the moments when he transcends his past all the more fulfilling. The authors seem to agree with me here as the latest version of Nier, a 2021 remake entitled Nier Replicant, went with young Nier as its protagonist and, for the first time, presented an English localized version of Nier's original Japanese release. If you're keeping score at home, that's three versions of the game known as Nier, and I'd argue that there is a fourth. Nier Automata, while generally considered to be a sequel, is so similar to Nier in terms of structure, story, and theme that it feels more like an offbeat remake or spiritual successor than a true sequel. I mean, it has the same weird plot flow, the same mid-game twist, as well as a host of mechanics that feel like upgraded versions of the systems found in the original game. Near Replicant brings the two games even closer together by vastly improving the combat mechanics and game feel of the original, as well as adding a new ending that bridges the two games' plots, creating a kind of narrative Ouroboros that borders this portion of the Taroverse. 
for a set of games that deal in heavy existentialism and try to answer the big questions in life, it's an immensely fitting narrative structure. So at this point, those of you who haven't played Nier are either thinking that this is a bunch of bullshit or are very, very intrigued. I'd argue that this is a huge part of Nier's appeal. The endless mystery, the sense of opening a massive puzzle box and sorting all the pieces before diving in. For me, in 2010, that was 100% of the appeal. Nier released at a time when I was not playing video games, but just hearing about it made me insanely curious. I even knew the game's big mid-game twist before I started playing, and that's actually what sealed it for me. I had to borrow a PS3, and I had to play this game. Which is exactly what I did. The first time I played Nier, I wasn't sure how to feel about it. I knew I was fascinated by it, but I wasn't sure if I liked it. Its attempt to reckon with the violence and death that were usually so casually included in standard role-playing games was truly unique in the genre, and its humanistic messages were actually very moving at points. It also featured some really good characters and some truly fantastic plotting. However, it also made some massive missteps in its story and its treatment of certain characters, the kind of thing that would keep me from ever really giving the game its due or wholeheartedly recommending it to others. On top of that, the original Nier was not actually very fun to play. Stylistically, it was a pretty standard action RPG that tried to combine the expected gameplay style of that genre with touches from other genres like traditional RPGs via the slow and deliberate magic system and bullet hell games via the enemies frequently filling the screen with Danmaku-style death walls of circular projectiles. These ideas are really neat, but the execution was lacking. The game's combat ends up feeling stiff and clunky, a problem only exacerbated by the game's unique structure. See, Nier is a game that is meant to be played over and over in order to see the whole thing. Rolling the credits on Nier is really only the beginning of your journey, as you're meant to play the second half of the game three times over in order to see the entirety of the story. It's an interesting idea in theory, although I'm not sure that it really works in any version of the game. In the original, the clunky gameplay made the repeat playthroughs a real slog for most of the 50-ish hours that it takes to do the official near and or near replicant full play, hereafter referred to as Ornanerf P. In the remake, the vastly improved combat and controls make the later sections of the game feel closer to breezy, but they also made me seriously wonder why they didn't streamline this aspect of the game structure when they were tinkering with all the other mechanics. Near Replicant also adds a totally new segment after the end of the original game that really takes things up a notch letting you play as a different character and showing you a very cool new area that fleshes out the plots of both Nier and its sequel, Nier Automata. It's a huge improvement, enough that I would totally recommend someone do the Ornanerf P rather than just watching a YouTube compilation of the story moments. But that said, the game is still too long and repetitive for its own good. There's no getting away from that. The main thing keeping even the most jaded and put-upon players laboring through those last 20 hours of gameplay is the plot, which is so weird and fascinating that it more or less justifies all the wild ideas found in the game's structure and mechanics. I mean, it's really good. Like, really, really good. Let's just say this. In the years since I first played Nier, I've had to come to grips with the fact that, despite hating parts of it, not even fully loving that first play, I am kind of obsessed with Nier. There really isn't anything else like it out there. Even Nier Automata, a game which feels like a remake and is objectively better than the original in every single way, can't quite match the wild, incomprehensible, and utterly broken charm of the original. We've made it this far, so let's have a music metaphor. There's a certain type of album, 
a wild, unhinged work made under the influence of drugs or grief or some other major force that will always appeal to you if you've experienced some dark shit in your life. The first one that springs to mind right now is Tonight's the Night by Neil Young and Crazy Horse, a ragged album of barely put together rock songs made in the wake of the lead guitar player's overdose death. That album is weird and warbly, full of poorly recorded songs filled with mistakes and blemishes, and yet those same blemishes give it an inimitable vibe. You can find much better sounding and more tightly performed live versions of many of those songs, and yet that album creates an atmosphere all its own. To me, Near is exactly that kind of work. But I can't really tell you why until I get into the what of this game. Let's assume that you're going to play, or have played, Near Replicant, since it's the best version of this game, and let's work from there. Okay, internal monologue Ali here to let you know that the rest of this episode is heavy on spoilers. Definitely spoilers for Nier, because I'm going to run you through the whole plot, and even some spoilers for Nier Automata. Now, as I discussed a little bit in this episode, I think that knowing where the story goes and knowing what the twists are is actually kind of a good thing for these stories. I mean, anyone who had played Nier kind of knew what was coming when they played Nier Automata, and I don't think it ruins the story or takes anything away from it. I think it's kind of like the thing that'll probably convince you to play the game if you're on the fence. However, I do feel like I need to include this warning because yeah, spoilers, 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 spoilers. Anyway, I hope you guys stick around. I hope you guys listen to the rest of this episode. I'm super proud of it. Um, I think it's really cool. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it as well. All right, here we go. Near Replicant is a 2021 action RPG based on the 2011 game Near that welds extremely fun combat and sticky controls to a narrative dripping with tragedy and suffused with existential doubt. The game opens in a near future post-apocalyptic Tokyo. We see a brother and sister fighting for their lives. Cold, hungry, and alone, they seem to be struggling just to live day after day. That is, until their routine is shattered by the appearance of a mob of unearthly monsters. In a desperate bid for survival, the brother makes a pact with an ominous magical book in exchange for destructive magical powers. He fights off the monstrous horde, but their fate is left undetermined. Suddenly, we flash forward a thousand years. We are introduced to another eerily similar brother and sister duo. These two seem to live a quiet life in an idyllic fantasy village, but there is an iterate darkness present. The sister, Yona, is infected with a mysterious disease that seems to be slowly draining her life away. The brother, named Nier, seeks the counsel of the village leaders Popola and Devola and heads out on a quest to find a cure for his sister's ailment. Here, we get some really great environmental storytelling. Near the game, not the guy, wastes no time in establishing its game world as a very strange place. It's a low-tech fantasy world that also appears to be a future post-apocalypse, as if the modern world was brutally wiped away and replaced with a minimalist, sparsely populated version of its own Middle Ages. Of course, there are wrinkles here. Magic exists, as do mystical monsters known as Shades. The shades seem to be a major problem in the world of Nier, as hordes of them cover the vast expanses between towns and occasionally even attack human settlements. A common refrain in the game is how much the humans hate and fear the shades. Nier, our protagonist, shares these sentiments, so much so that he, like his counterpart from a millennium earlier, makes a pact with an ominous magical book in exchange for destructive magical powers. This book, called Grimoire Vice, becomes Nier's constant companion, floating after him everywhere he goes and assisting him in battle by casting magic spells while he slashes through hordes of shades. He also talks a lot. 
Like, a lot, a lot. It's a problem, but we'll get to that later. Put a pin in it. The presence of Vice seems to shift the story forward, as it becomes clear that Nier is part of a larger prophecy, one that portends the end of the mysterious disease and the shade epidemic that plagues the humans who have survived in the brutalist world of Nier. The game, not the guy. Jesus fucking Christ. Anyways, Nier, the guy, not the game, starts to receive directions from Popola guiding him in the direction of fulfilling the prophecy by finding all of the sealed verses, these being portions of Grimoire Vice that unlock new magical powers and abilities as they are collected. In his quest to do so, he meets two important characters, Kaine and Emil. Kaine is a foul-mouthed warrior that Nier meets in her hometown, a cruel and lonely place where everyone seems to hate her. They team up to defeat a massive shade and she begrudgingly joins Nier on his quest. Kaine is maybe the most awkward and divisive part of this game, so we'll put a pin in this for now and come back later, okay? Okay. Emil is a strange kid who lives in a creepy old manor outside of Nier's village. For horror fans, this is where you should definitely be paying attention. The section where you play through Emile's Manor is an homage to classic survival horror, complete with 90s aesthetics, fixed camera angles, and obtuse puzzles. It's so, so, so good, and I really can't express how happy it made me to play this section of the game. It's also extremely important to the plot because we learn that Emil is both able to turn people to stone with his Medusa-like gaze, and also somehow linked to the central mystery of Nier's plague-ravaged world. Soon after the adventure at Emil's manor, all hell breaks loose, as a giant shade attacks Nier's village and almost destroys it. At the same time, a mysterious and powerful shade known as the Shadow Lord appears and kidnaps Nier's sister, Yona. The gang is unable to stop this event and realize that their only choice is to deal with the giant shade threatening to destroy the village. In a Hail Mary attempt to stop it, Nier lures the shade into the library basement while Kaine blocks the doorway with her body. She then tells Emil to petrify her in order to seal the shade in. Reluctantly, he complies, sealing Kaine in stone and ending the shade's rampage. This serves as the ending of the game's first act. Its second act opens five years after this event and showcases a world sunk even further into the depths of despair. Shades are even more prevalent in the game's overworld, and Nier has become a bitter and violent adult. Still unable to save his sister, he has vowed to kill any and every shade he comes across. As if things couldn't get any worse, Nier and Emil quickly discover that Emil is actually an experimental weapon created as part of an old government project. In discovering this, they also find the monstrous remains of Emil's sister, a strange entity that ends up fusing with Emil and turning him into a skeletal being with a grotesque, bulbous head. This head, for the record, is the model for the iconic mask that Yoko Taro frequently wears during public appearances. Now fully in control of his magical powers, Emil returns to the library to free Kaine from her petrified state. This kicks off the game's second main quest, which is a race to collect the fragments of an ancient key that will grant them access to the Shadow Lord's castle, where Yona is being held. Upon completing this task, they head to said castle, only to be greeted by Popola and Devola, who are revealed to be servants of the Shadow Lord. Their betrayal is shocking, as they had served as sort of big sisters to Nier and Yona throughout the game thus far. They attack the protagonists and attempt to stop them, only to be beaten back. Devola falls first, enraging her surviving sister. In a last-ditch attempt to stop Nier's progress, Popola channels all of her power into a massive explosion, which Nier and Kaine only survive thanks to Emil, who sacrifices himself to protect them. Shocked and grief-stricken, they venture onward and find the Shadow Lord tending to Yona in his keep. 
Something appears to be off, however, as Yona doesn't seem to be herself. Regardless, they fight and defeat the Shadow Lord and restore Yona to her old self. Nier and Yona are happily reunited, and Kaine, despite Nier's protests, decides to venture off on her own. It's an odd, abrupt ending that seems to answer none of the big questions that the game has raised. The credits roll, but it doesn't really feel like much of an ending at all. Because, really, it isn't the end. Not by a long shot. Start up the game again, however, and you'll begin to get some answers. Your second playthrough of Nier's second act begins with a text-only portion, a style that the game briefly introduces in the Forest of Myth, but that will repeatedly come up as a way for the game to fill in plot details and backstory throughout your second, third, and fourth playthroughs of the second act. As a side note, I really love these portions. They're extremely well written, and some of them are interactive in a way that recalls old text adventure games like Zork. Super cool, super unexpected, A+. This particular text-only bit focuses on Kaine's backstory and explains how she came to be the strange and contradictory figure that you've come to know throughout your playthrough. Alright, so is it, is it time to talk about Kaine yet? Um, I don't think it is. I think we need to at least get to the big twist before we talk about that. Yeah, that, that feels right. I do this? Honestly, I can feel the packing peanuts slipping between my fingers as I record this. They have such a disgusting feel to them and they make this horrible noise when you rub your fingers over them. It's not loud, but I swear I can feel it in my teeth. Alright, here's the quick synopsis of Kaine's backstory. She was born intersex, and thus was bullied relentlessly by kids and adults in her village. By all accounts, hers was a miserable existence that was only made tolerable by her grandma. Kaine's grandma was both her only family member and only friend, the bright spot in an otherwise unrelentingly bleak life. As time passed, however, her grandma grew increasingly sick and frail. Kaine had to take on more responsibility around her household and also interact more and more with the villagers, who still held her in contempt. Despite this, she managed to carve out a little space for herself and find joy where she could. That lasted until the day that a giant shade attacked her home, destroying it and trapping her grandma inside. She attempted to stop the shade, but was no match for the giant beast, which proceeded to pin her down and slowly crush her body as she watched her grandma die in the wreckage of her former home. On the verge of death and resigned to her fate, Kaine was suddenly contacted by the disembodied voice of a shade who offered to save her life, if, and only if, she agreed to become a relentless killing machine in order to satisfy its bloodlust. Left with no other options, Kaine agreed and found herself reborn as a half-human, half-shade hybrid. She is still essentially herself, but she is also duty-bound to kill and spread death as relentlessly as possible. This reveal changes our whole perception of Kaine, as we realize that her tough, profanity-laced exterior and emotionally distant stance are born of a desire to keep relatively innocent people like Nier and Emil as far away from her literal dark side as possible. She knows that there is a part of herself she can't control, and it creates a heartbreaking barrier between her and her friends. There is, however, another piece here. Because Kaine is half shade, she can understand what the shades are saying. Yes, as it turns out, the Shades are intelligent beings that can do anything humans do, i.e. communicate with each other, form meaningful bonds, feel emotions, etc. This is the game's big twist. The seemingly mindless enemies you've been mowing down by the dozens are actually sentient beings. 
You're not a fantasy hero. You're a fucking war criminal. Your second playthrough is mostly focused on this element. Sure, there are some more character building scenes for Kaine and Emil, and even later Popola and Devola, but the main difference is that you now get some backstory on all of the big shades that you face on your way to confront the Shadow Lord. And, of course, all of them are crushingly depressing. Many of these quote-unquote boss fights are reframed as senseless tragedies. A battle with a crazed robot is revealed to be that same machine attempting to protect his best friend. An all-out brawl with a pack of wolves is revealed to be the pack's last-ditch attempt at surviving the destruction of their natural environment. A serial-killing shade is revealed to be a confused kid, etc, etc, etc. Even more tragic is that only the player and Kaine are party to these revelations. Nier, our foolhardy protag, is still too wrapped up in his blind hatred of shades to see the truth of what's happening, and Kaine can't break through her own emotional barriers to tell him what's going on. It's unbelievably tragic, and the game becomes a heartbreaking trip through the inevitable as we learn what's really going on with these shades, only to still destroy them in the name of progress. It's especially brutal because we've already seen the effects that this violence has had on the human characters. To learn that there is another side that is also suffering lends the game a sense of realism and emotional weight that is staggeringly heavy. But of course, things get heavier. As we go along, we learn the shocking truth about the nature of the Shades and the strange experiment that gave rise to their very existence. As it turns out, the world of Nier has been ravaged by plague for hundreds of years, and at some point in the distant past, a radical solution was proposed. Known as Project Gestalt, this experiment was an attempt to preserve the human race by separating human bodies from their souls. This would put the soul into stasis, waiting for a future time when a cure was developed for the deadly plague ravaging humanity. At this time, there would be a mass reunification of bodies and souls, and humanity could continue on. Things, however, didn't go as planned. The soulless bodies, known as replicants, lived on independently and developed their own society and culture, while the souls, known as gestalts, became twisted and corrupt, ultimately turning into shades. To sum it up, most of the main characters in Nier are technically soulless husks, while the enemies that you've been casually decimating are the actual remnants of the human race. Of course, it also ties directly to our main characters. The Shadow Lord is not only the original Gestalt and Soul Force keeping the Gestalt project alive, he's also Nier's Gestalt, aka the soul that originally inhabited his body. His kidnapping of Yona wasn't just selfishly motivated, he was seeing if reunification was even possible after a thousand years. The wildest part is that he actually succeeded. The Yona that we initially find in his keep is the original sister from a thousand years before. She has no idea who we are and doesn't even acknowledge the protagonist until the original Yona decides to leave her body behind and let replicant Yona take control. Once again, our entire frame of reference is shifted. Popola, Devola, and the Shadow Lord are all working towards humanity's original goal, while our scrappy group of adventurers are bumbling around, sowing chaos and blindly spreading death upon an already blighted land. And we have to do it again. And again. And again. That initial reveal is so powerful that it's hard to take it all in. It's Are We the Baddies amplified a thousand times over. When people talk about how bleak and depressing the Nier games are, they're referencing moments like these, 
moments that reinforce a worldview that views human tragedy as a series of inevitable Shakespearean tableaus. I want to pause here and talk about this twist for a second. Longtime listeners may be wondering why I like the story beats so much in this game, but have also roundly criticized other games for telling stories that hinge on the idea of there being quote-unquote good people on both sides. I think it works in Nier because the game is divorced from political realities. It's a fantasy story about a ragtag bunch of adventurers facing down a massive evil. We are conditioned to not take it literally and, if anything, are seeking out metaphor and allegory within the story. I think that Taro recognized this and used Nier's story as a way to subvert that search for meaning. The fantasy genre is full of tropes that are ripe for dissection or subversion. Ideas relating to race, class, social hierarchy, etc. And when we see them flipped on their head, it can be both very unexpected and also massively satisfying. The context here is our experience with the genre as a whole, rather than anything too specific. This is why the shades work so well as an idea in this game. They're the perfect capital O other, a shadowy and indistinct villain that the protagonists don't see as human. Since we can't glean much from their appearance or behavior, we also accept this framework and assume that they aren't human. There are small clues here and there, like some snatches of what sounds like speech and some bits of coordinated behavior, but nothing that can prepare us for the reveal that the shades are just as, if not arguably more, human than the game's main characters. This is a trick that doesn't work in a game featuring any sort of realism or political reality. In that scenario, we can already interpret the situation for ourselves and draw inferences about the situation. Put simply, the creators can't keep us in the dark when the game world mirrors our own. I think it's helpful here to compare Nier to another 7th gen game that attempted the same type of subversion. That game is Spec Ops The Line. Spec Ops The Line is a 2012 action shooter game that managed to make some waves and establish an enduring legacy for itself by attempting to be a massive subversion of the military action genre. In that game, you play as a soldier who is caught in a nightmarish war scenario in which a massive sandstorm turns Dubai into a Silent Hill-esque otherworld. The game is basically Silent Hill 2 meets Call of Duty, as our square-jawed protag fights his way through a series of surreal combat scenarios, never entirely sure if what he's seen is really happening, only occurring in his head, or spurred on by some sort of other supernatural force. The big twist here is that the hero's journey, which lifts heavily from Heart of Darkness by way of Apocalypse Now, has been mostly imagined as a side effect of a chemical warfare attack. It turns out that our quote-unquote hero has been blindly killing civilians and friendly soldiers this whole time, while searching for a charismatic villain that only exists in his own mind. So this story is like super fucking stupid, okay? I've long refused to like review or interact with this game any further than watching YouTube long plays of it for research because I immediately clocked a whole bunch of problems with its story. For one, it wants to be a subversion or critique of military violence, but it doesn't actually critique the job that the soldiers are there to do, which is kill enemy forces. Instead, they present the main character as an unhinged bad guy because he kills civilians and comrades. This doesn't actually register as a critique because clearly he's just quote-unquote one bad apple. 
The game still fits everything into the accepted framework of military violence, and implies that had he just done his job of killing the right faceless brown people, he would still be a hero, free to come back home and end up living on the street after his benefits are cut and his lingering medical problems make his life a living hell. God bless America. The game also trivializes and gamifies real-life war crimes, to the level of press X to do illegal chemical warfare that will result in generations of birth defects and barren crops. It's so fucking gnarly and disgusting, and there's nothing to back it up. The game doesn't have some big point or intelligent idea at the core of it. It's just more military spectacle, but capital S sad this time. This, then, is the brilliance of Nier. By avoiding these realities and using an unfamiliar fantasy setting, the game keeps us from drawing our own conclusions. It actually manages to put us in the mindset of the protagonist and make their revelations feel real and personal to us. An American soldier realizing that he is doing the wrong thing doesn't really have any impact on me. In my opinion, he should have already known that. However, a weird kid in a dark fantasy world realizing that the womp rats he's been murdering are actually the original humans and that he's basically an android? That's some real shit. I can fucking get with that. There is, however, a crushing, all-pervasive, and brutally edgy vibe that both games share. At points... Nier leans so far into the tragic inevitability of conflict and death that it threatens to become just as much of an adolescent nihilistic spectacle as something like Spec Ops. It's fortunate, then, that the later parts of the game focus on the human drama element and bring a little bit of hope and levity to the story. Ultimately, Nier is a game about friendship and human connection in the face of massive and terrible loss. Upon replaying the second part, we are shown a longer version of the final encounter, in which Kaine loses control and attacks Nier. Here, Nier is offered a choice between killing Kaine and sacrificing himself for Kaine, essentially deleting himself from existence in order to restore her humanity and end her suffering at the hands of the shade that possesses her body. Nier choosing to sacrifice himself was the original good ending of the game, Nier, one that is fleshed out by Nier Replicant's fifth ending, which finds Kaine going on an existential quest to confront her own past and the mysterious forces that seem to govern her world in order to restore Nier's existence. Along the way, we are reunited with Emil and given just the tiniest shred of hope for the future. Playing this fifth ending really reinforced what I've always thought about Nier which is that it's a game about forging powerful bonds with other people in spite of the state of the world. The characters in Nier are all to one degree or another loners, people who don't have many connections to other people. Nier and his sister are fairly reclusive, Kaine refuses to engage with others, and Emil has shut himself in a remote haunted mansion in order to keep himself from hurting anyone else. Yet, throughout the course of the game, these characters grow closer and closer, despite the world around them falling further and further into disarray. Near Replicant even takes this theme further by directly tying the game to Near Automata's extremely dark and dystopian future. The game makes it quite explicit that nothing good lies ahead for these characters and their world. Characters who, to be clear, are soulless remnants left behind by a god that abandoned them for a thousand years only to return and try to steal their bodies. Let that sink in. And yet, we still root for them and cherish the good moments that they share. 
Maybe I identify a little too much with this story because sometimes I see the real world in this way. It's hard not to look around and feel like we live in a world where God has turned his back on us and humanity is very quickly offloading its collective soul into the cloud. And yet, we still soldier on and we try to make the best of what we've got. If there's one thing that Nier Automata couldn't do better than the original, it's portraying that type of scenario. Nier is the perfect story for right now, when all of us are trying to figure out what to do with our lives as we watch the world literally burn and shake itself apart. What can we do at the end of humanity, if not try to love one another and treat those closest to us with compassion and empathy. Okay, so I've made this game sound about 80% amazing, and I think that's probably fair. But, of course, we've got to talk about the game's biggest failing, the thing that flies in the face of its humanistic message of compassion and empathy. We've got to talk about how it treats Kaine. Kaine was always going to be an issue. It's been empirically proven that when one of these horny old auteur guys tries to use a woman character to comment on the treatment of women or disparities in sex and or gender, it always goes sideways and it always ends up being a total shit show. I've already spent some time talking about Swery's handling of these issues in the Deadly Premonition 2 and the Missing episodes, respectively, but the quick summary is that I really don't think either of those games did this topic justice. I could start kvetching about the rampant misogyny in Suda51's Killer is Dead, but honestly, you can just Google it if you really want to. That game sucks, and he sucks for doing that. See, what I actually want to do here is jump right to the heart of the issue and talk about a much better example. That is, of course, the character Quiet in Hideo Kojima's Metal Gear Solid 5. The unveiling of Quiet was supposed to be a real event, as Kojima signaled in his now infamous tweet, claiming that gamers criticizing Quiet's character design would, quote, regret their words and deeds once they actually played the game. Quiet was, of course, a mostly naked woman who didn't speak and also moved in a creepy, over-sexualized way. Kojima's stands took the man at his word and figured that there was going to be some big, mind-blowing reveal relating to the over-sexualization of this character, but alas, there was not. As it turned out, Quiet was just another nonsensical Kojima idea. A woman who photosynthesizes light through her skin instead of breathing, and thus needs to be mostly naked at all times. Cause of course she does. Kojima's hope that this would be subversive was as confused as it was confusing, and rightly, this decision drew a lot of criticism. For me, personally, it really hinges on Kojima's poor track record with this stuff. Some of his earliest games, like Snatcher, are dismissive of their women characters, while others, like Police Knots, trade in really, really gross misogyny. His later games aren't as openly misogynistic, but you could credibly accuse him of underwriting his women characters. Viewed through that lens, Metal Gear Solid V is on pretty thin ice when trying to use a woman character to make a point about objectification. Hey, internal monologue Ali here. Just to give you a quick content warning, I'm about to mention sexual assault and give some very brief yet vague descriptions of scenes involving sexual assault in Metal Gear Solid 5. So if you don't want to hear that, you can skip ahead pretty much exactly one minute and uh, the essay will continue. Okay, thanks. Another layer here is that MGS5 includes two completely unnecessary instances of sexual assault. One involves the aforementioned character and is framed almost as a rape-revenge scenario where Quiet is nearly assaulted by a group of men before she rallies and kills them all. 
The other is a somewhat obscured scenario where a character named Paz is assaulted during an interrogation scene. You never see this second event, but you can listen to an audio recording of it in the game's supplemental files. From the dumb guy perspective, both scenarios seem to be skirting the edge of what we would call a quote-unquote rape scene in a work of media, but I would consider both scenes to be tasteless, edgelord garbage that attempt to use a very heavy, real-life happening to add a shocking element to what is otherwise a normal military action game. This is all to say, Quiet was not a good look. I guess he was trying to do something there, but he biffed it. I don't think it makes Metal Gear Solid 5 a terrible, indefensible game, but he should be roundly criticized for this, and it should haunt him a little bit as a reminder to do better in the future. But of course, gamers and criticism go together about as well as nuts and gum, so any discourse about Quiet inevitably turned into a skirmish in the ongoing culture war. I just so happened to run across an incredible example of this while writing this episode, and I want to share it with you guys. In the comments section, under a Kotaku article reminiscing about the original Quiet debacle, some big-brained oracle commented that anyone criticizing Quiet's design was slut-shaming the character. Yeah, I'm going to let that sink in. Slut-shaming. A fictional character. Now, obviously this person is as dumb as a bag of rocks, but honestly I want to thank them for this comment, because it really helped me put my thoughts on this topic in perspective. I think a lot of people nowadays confuse fictional characters with real people. I don't know why, maybe it's too much time online, but it's neither here nor there. The point is that a fictional character is an author's creation. It is a presentation of an idea created by a single person and, in the case of a video game, fleshed out by a larger team. When you criticize the essential elements of the character, you are critiquing the author and or the people who made it, not necessarily the character themselves. So yeah, you can't slut shame a fictional character because they're not real. You could level a misogynistic insult or complaint at the character, sure, but you can't shame them or interact with them like an actual human being. They're not your waifu. We really need to be able to critique the over-sexualization of characters in media like anime and video games because, unlike live-action movies or TV shows, the possibilities are endless. There isn't an actor to push back on costuming or character choices, there's just a blank page to be filled with whatever weird fantasies the creator wishes. I think that's why I have such a problem with over-sexualization in anime and video games, but not in live-action films or TV shows. Seeing a real person dressed in a certain way implies some level of autonomy or consent that doesn't exist in rendered media. In those forms, you're getting a window directly into the creator's mind. The choices are solely theirs to map onto the characters, and sometimes it feels kind of gross. As a cis straight dude who has traditionally been the target audience for this kind of stuff, I feel a special kind of personal revulsion, akin to when someone tries to commiserate with you in public over something that you don't agree with them on. Okay, so finally, let's talk about Kaine. If you're listening to this episode without having played Nier, you're probably imagining Kaine's character design as something like a low fantasy warrior. Maybe something close to Casca from Berserk. And you, my friend, would be extremely wrong. Kaine, as it turns out, wears a ridiculous set of lingerie, including a tight lace-up negligee, an underwear that features not only a boob window, but also a butt window. Kaine's really living in 2049 with that shit. For a long time, the outfit was defended by fans as having story significance. It's worth mentioning that there were also bandages covering two of her limbs that belonged to the shade possessing her, but personally, I don't really see it. Back in the day, I remember reading a theory online that her younger years, in which she was bullied for being intersex and not accepted as a woman, informed her decision to dress in a feminine and extremely over-sexualized way. But 
that also reads as really foul to me. In the years following my initial play, the presentation of the original game seemed to commingle and get confused with the weird stuff I read online in an effort to understand this bizarre and confusing game. I ended up coming to the conclusion that Kaine's story was problematic, insulting to women, and unable to treat the plot point about her being intersex with the right amount of care. But as I replayed the game, I realized this. I actually don't really have a problem with Kaine's story as it's written. Her status as intersex is a part of her backstory, but it's not played for cheap melodrama or used to shock or titillate. I was pleasantly surprised to find that it's presented pretty tastefully in the game. I will add the caveat that this is my opinion as a cis straight guy and I'm open to whatever dialogue about this, but yeah, I have to admit, I was pleasantly surprised. That said, it clashes massively with the visual presentation of the character. Kaine is frequently presented as an object for the character to ogle, including an achievement for trying to look up her skirt that has a really, really gross description. This element of the game is so shitty and just gross. It clashes with the rest of the game's writing and messaging so much that it makes me angry, sad, and embarrassed all at once. I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that the only reason I was able to start playing near Replicant is that it comes with a free DLC that lets you change Kaine's costume to look like 2B's outfit from Nier Automata. I literally couldn't do a full play of this game with the butt window always winking at me. I'm sorry gamers, I just can't fucking do it. It's not just a visual thing either. Kaine is a tragic character in a tragic game. Horrible things happen to her. She's beaten up, her family is killed, she watches her friends die, she gets turned to stone for five years. To go through all that while also being presented as an empty sex object is just foul, and it makes those other plot points seem unnecessarily cruel. It doesn't help that one of the characters, Grimoire Vice, is constantly mentioning her appearance and calling her a hussy, because apparently it's 1922. I mean, let's get this out of the way while we're kvetching. Grimoire Vice sucks. His voice is terrible. His dialogue feels like it was written by a 12-year-old trying to recreate Shakespeare. His character is annoying, and his quote-unquote arc is basically non-existent. He's really fucking annoying, and then he dies while being really fucking annoying. Fuck that guy. This is the push and pull of Nier. It's a game that features a huge, sweeping, emotional story that questions what it means to be human and contains an absolutely scathing critique of violence in video games and real life. But it also contains a talking book whose main character traits are being so annoying that you will pray for death and also hating women. That's uh, really, really cool, guys. We love that. Nier is the kind of game that will make you cry because it's really moving and sad, but also because it's so frustratingly boring, and also, also, no one will lend its main woman protagonist some bike shorts or something. Fucking yes. Alright. Right now, my teeth are killing me because I'm imagining my entire body covered in those fucking foam peanuts. They are filling the spaces in between my fingers and toes. I am merging with the packing peanuts. Where does the man end and the peanut begin? When will I be free? I don't have any answers when it comes to Nier. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with it. I don't know why I've spent 100 hours playing it twice through and close to 20 hours watching YouTube videos, including story compilations and lore explainers. I don't know why anyone still uses styrofoam packing peanuts. I don't really know anything at all. Well, maybe that's not true. I do know that I felt something while playing near. And not just the expected emotions of happy, sad, excited, contemplative, etc. that we feel while consuming media. I felt weirdly seen and commiserated with while playing Nier. 
Watching these characters overcome their own faults to bond with each other while facing a world slowly falling into dust was honestly very moving. I don't know how much longer we, as a species, have left, and I guess I'm looking for anything that portrays hope in a hopeless world. For all its faults, Nier does that incredibly well. So, I guess I'll stop being ashamed of liking it so much. Or, at the very least, I'll try. Sometimes, all you can do is try. Try.